0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absight podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content. But their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months? To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindtheknife.org. Applications are due February 13th.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining in and tuning into yet another episode for Abside on Behind the Knife. This year, we are doing a special bonus colorectal episode. Um, In colorectal episodes one and two, we cover the length and breadth of all the topics that are very high yield for APSIDES. However, there are some new material that we are going to cover in this episode and touch on some high pearls for um, this year's upcoming APSIDES. To lead this review, we have none other than our very own colorectal expert, Dr. Scott Steele. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Steele.
0: All right, everybody. Good to see everybody's listening out there and getting ready for the app site.
2: Perfect. So in our previous colorectal episode, we talked about anal canal anatomy. This is, very, um, this is a topic that a lot of people struggle with and it's hard to um, describe, but it's a very testable material. Why don't we start with uh, discussing some of the high points of the uh, anal canal anatomy that one should know?
0: Yeah, that's great. And so I, I want to encourage everybody, I'm going to be making a YouTube video. You've heard us talk about it before. where I used to give a lecture where I talk about shrinking somebody down and place it in right at the anal verge and kind of what's around you. I found that's the easiest way to visualize it and uh, I'll be putting that together. But for right now, just imagine that you, you're you looking at a patient and the thing that you're staring at first and foremost is the anal verge. Remember that anal verge is something where I always try to tell people. Um, that it is the part where the shiny skin meets the normal looking skin. And so what's really happening there is really a change from your endoderm into your ectoderm. And that ectoderm goes from what is stratified squamous to stratified squamous keratinizing epithelium. And then as you get a little bit further out, you'll start to see some of the hair follicles that come into place. So the anal canal itself, it's that terminal portion of the digestive tract. It's typically about an inch to an inch and a half. So think about it in terms of four centimeters and it's bounded in the middle by the dentate or otherwise called as the pectinate line. Now, now remember that's to be distinguished uh, between other lines in the body so that the pectinate and the dentate line is sitting right there. It's kind of that purple looking structure that you might see. So below that we have a different type of sensation and that type of sensation is somatic innervation. So you touch it, you feel exactly where it is. And then above that is autonomic innervation. And the reason that's important is think about the different processes that we would deal with. For example, an internal hemorrhoid that's above the dentate line, you can put a rubber band on it and the patients will do fairly well. Below that is somatic innervation. And so if you put a rubber band on that type of a hemorrhoid they're gonna feel it and they're gonna have a lot of different problems. And so in the middle of there are those rectal columns or folds and, you know, in bounding that entire area is the sphincter muscles. So think about it. It goes from essentially, there's different types of anal canals that are described, the the surgical canal or the the, um, anatomical canal, but just think about it from everything that's below the puborectalis down to the anal verge. And then out from there is a bullseye area with the anal verge right at the center. And that's your anal margin. And that's the area around, encompassing essentially what is now normal skin that extends five centimeters radially uh, from that mucocutaneous junction from that anal verge. So anal you know, canal, inside, endoderm, bound by upper and lower in the pentanate line. Outside, that's essentially looking skin five centimeters out from the anal verge in a radial type fashion.
2: Excellent. I think that was a great review of something that is very hard to describe, uh, and we look forward to your, uh, your whiteboard talk on this. Uh, moving on to the next big topic, we covered it in pretty good detail in our uh, previous episode. However, there have been some screening changes to, uh, to the colorectal cancer recommendations recently, and we wanted to bring up the updated recommendations in this, uh, in this episode. So uh, Dr. Steele, can you talk to us about the current uh, screening guidelines for a colonoscopy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to always understand the difference between having somebody that's being screened, i.e. they're asymptomatic, and somebody who's having, um, having symptoms, and that's a diagnostic scope. So if you're getting asked about anything about diagnosis, remember that's age-relevant. You're having symptoms, you got bleeding, you got pain, you got changes in your bowel movement but somebody who's screening, we're assuming that they either have risk factors or they're at an average risk, and we're just gonna go ahead and screen them, they're asymptomatic. And so now for the past couple of years, based on initially the American College or the American Cancer Society guidelines recommendations, somebody that is an average risk will start screening at the age of 45. Now, it's important to understand that, you know, most of the time tests like the AbSite are up to date in terms of these, um, and you will, hopefully be that, but don't be surprised in certain cases where it may lag a little behind during, depending on when you take this examination. But the latest one says for average risk screening, that screening starts at 45 years. Now, what we talked about before is average risk versus increased risk. So you got to say to yourself, what puts somebody at an increased risk of having, um, of having potential for colorectal cancer? Well, the first one is, is that you are having a personal history of colon cancer yourself, or a personal history of polyps yourself. These are ones that you're gonna you may be asymptomatic, but you've had something that goes along. And again, to cut through the weeds, I did say a personal history of cancer. So this would be surveillance screening, we're not talking about that. So that's a surveillance scope, not necessarily an asymptomatic screening scope. But personal history of polyps definitely is something that would put you into into play. So other things that will put you into that is obviously having a family history. And when we break down the family history, we talk about first-degree relatives or multiple second-degree relatives. That's an easy way to be able to think about it. And then some of the hereditary neoplasm, such as FAP or Lynch syndrome, which we're going to get into in here in a little bit, that would put you in an increased risk. And finally, anything that increases inflammation. And specifically, as we talk about it, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, those type of situations that can put you at a slightly increased risk for cancer, that chronic inflammation. So polyps, family history, some of the hereditary type neoplasia, those are the ones that are uh, probably critically important.
2: Excellent. And something that we, uh, Forget to cover is that when we talk about screening and just screening surveillance, there is a different paradigm which starts at forty at the age of forty five and goes from there. But then once you have a personal history of polyps. The screening guidelines uh, the surveillance guidelines, like you said, also changes. And this is a very testable topic. So, in, it, when you have findings of col- on colonoscopy of having tubal, one to two tubular adenomas, the interval to repeat your surveillance, your next surveillance colonoscopy is five years. Some of the things that you want to remember from moving on is also that histology, such such as having a tubular. Villus adenoma versus a sessile um, serrated polyp also changes how uh, frequently you are going to be getting a surveillance um, colonoscopy. Dr. Steele, would you like to describe a little bit more of the nuances uh, as to what type of polyps and how long that interval should be?
0: Yeah, so the first thing I would say that's very important that everybody kind of goes into this and reviews the latest. ACG guidelines, or it's one of the other ones, because there's no question that these things change um, uh, throughout, and you'll start to see a little bit differences. So it's always a, kind of one of those high yield ones to say, how often am I going to follow these patients up? So, in general, as you talked about, there's a difference between polyps. So, do you have hyperplastic polyps, which are essentially considered average risk? And we're not going to get into the weeds, the colorectal weeds. They're not going to test you on this but because you can have hyperplastic polyp syndrome and you can have people who have serrated adenomas or, or things like that. And so in general, hyperplastic polyps are considered average risk and you're going to want to be able to interval to repeat about 10 years. Then you got to think about, you could have one polyp, but that polyp could be advanced. And what do we mean by that? It could be having dysplasia and on a very basic level, for those of you who should know what dysplasia is, but think about it. You have cells that look funny, then they look real funny, almost like cancer, but it hasn't yet invaded the basement membrane, so it's not quite cancer. That's high-grade dysplasia. Um, or you can have tubular villus or villus adenomas that are a little bit more progressed, or they can be big, greater than one centimeter, something that would be considered an advanced adenoma. And so if they have an advanced adenoma, you want to get a follow-up in essentially about three years. Now, the caveat to this is the fact that this is assuming that you have a complete resection of that polyp with negative boundaries. So if you were given a question, for example, that you weren't able to get it all, well then potentially you gotta go back earlier than what that is. And then finally, if you have multiple adenomas greater than three, for example, that would be something that you wanna decrease that interval down to three years. And so goes into saying, what is it you're dealing with? How big is it? How many, what is the underlying pathology? And then along with that, were you able to completely take out that polyp or not?
2: These are all some really good pointers, and not just for apside but for juniors when you go out there doing your endoscopy rotations, these are very good uh, tables to review. There are great resources online to look up um, as to what your uh, personal history of polyps and what the interval to repeat surve- uh, surveillance colonoscopy is. Similar topic, but slightly different. Once you have a known diagnosis of colorectal cancer, you undergo surgery, um, the cancer is out, what is the post-surgery surveillance? This is also a nuanced question, but something that we can see on an upside question. So typically, these patients get followed by three to six months of having a clinical exam uh, that can be uh, spaced out to six months for the next five years. A colonoscopy is then done usually at the one-year mark, followed by three to five years. Dr. Steele, if this colonoscopy was not done prior to the surgical resection, when do you recommend getting a colonoscopy? And what are the typical paradigms uh, of treatment uh, or surveillance uh, that one should know post-surgery?
0: Yeah. So in general, if you have something like an obstructed cancer where you can't get all the way around, after you resect that particular area, if there's no way that you can, quote, unquote, clear the colon, You want to make sure that you do a colonoscopy within three to six months. Um, After that, obviously, if you've done your resection, then it follows a particular pattern. And that's that surveillance that we were talking about before. So in general, you do a resection, you're going to want to get a follow up scope in one year. And then assuming that that's clear, you'll get a follow up scope in three years, and then every five years. Now, what's important to understand here is the fact that these particular guidelines can change if There are findings at the time of that colonoscopy. So for example, if you get your follow-up scope at one year and you see multiple polyps, you're not going to wait to have something for five years or three years. You're going to want to go ahead and do it earlier than that, depending on what your findings are, uh, in line with what we talked about a little bit before. Obviously, if somebody, like I said, has an advanced adenoma at that time, then you're going to do it at one year. So you go back to what you saw at that time. But assuming that everything is in and of itself negative or normal, you don't see anything, it's one year, three years, and then every five years.
2: Perfect. Um, I think that's enough about talking about colonoscopies and colonoscopy intervals. Yet another topic that is a guaranteed at least one question on every app site that I've taken so far, and that's talking about the familial or the hereditary syndromes uh, in colorectal cancers. So the first thing that we want to talk about uh, this evening is familial polyposis syndrome. How, what is the syndrome? What's the diagnosis, screening, and surgical management? So let's let's do that. Um, familial uh, polyposis syndrome is an autosomal dominant syndrome, and it has a 100% risk of colorectal cancer by the age of 40. So Dr. Steele, would you like to enlighten us a little bit more about some of the questions that can be asked, especially of familial ad, adenomatous polyposis and st- talking a little bit about screening colonoscopies for this particular group of
0: people. Yeah, so great question. So they're not going to go into a whole, probably a lot of in-depth uh, on FAP, but, you know, some of the high yield things that we talk about is just exactly what you said, is that it is autosomal dominant. The mutation tends to be the APC gene, APC, FAP on chromosome number five. As you said before, there's 100% risk of colorectal cancer in these particular patients, um, typically by the age 40, and it's passed along in terms of autosomal dominant. The good news about this is that there are genetic tests that are able to identify those people who are affected, and those people aren't. So those people who aren't affected, even if you're from an FAP family, you know, you're just like another average risk screening individual. But if you do have it, Um, then what's important is that your screening would start typically by age 10 to 12 years.
2: What is the surgical management on an upside question for this patient?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. And and I think it goes into the fact that, you know, are there polyps? Again, it's important to understand, is this attenuated FAP? Is this full FAP? Are there polyps that you can control endoscopically and the patient will be able to do it? Or are there just thousands of polyps everywhere. Is there relative rectal sparing or is there not? So all of these things come into a little bit of a play, but in general, uh, probably the easiest answer is to undergo a total proctocolectomy with an ileoanal pouch or a total proctocolectomy with an end ileostomy. There are some subtle differences of patients who may have some relative rectal sparing that are very good candidates for surveillance. They understand the risks for that, and they could undergo a total abdominal colectomy with serial surveillance of the rectum and they could preserve their rectum and have an ileorectal anastomosis. But in general, for something like this, we want to make sure that we remove all the affected tissue. And in this particular case, the affected tissue is the colon, the rectum, and then we try to reconstruct for those patients with a pouch, or we try to give them an end ileostomy. The other important thing to understand anytime you have some of these hereditary neoplasms is that with the colon or the rectum come other type of neoplasms and those other type of tumors to watch out for are classically in the upper abdomen, specifically periampillary tumors, those duodenal adenomas. And these are surveillance with EGDs oftentimes every three years, depending on what you see. They may have some hyperplastic fundic polyps uh, in the stomach that tend not to be as much of a problem. It's the, it's the ones that are associated with the duodenum that are a little bit more You can also have desmoids and remember those desmoids are quote unquote benign disease, but they're locally aggressive, they can wrap around structures They can be particularly problematic, uh, causing ischemia, bowel obstructions and recurrence. Um, And so they can, uh, you know, be surveyed, uh, they can be in the abdomen, they can be in the abdominal wall, so they can be seen uh, with CT scans as a part of that. And we talked a little bit before about attenuated FAP, which tends to have a lower burden of polyposis. It's still autosomal dominant, and you still carry that high risk of developing colorectal cancer.
2: So Dr. Steele, is there an age where patients with FAP that is not attenuated undergo a prophylactic proctocolectomy with either ileoanal pouch or an ileostomy?
0: Yeah. So most people will get that time around their uh, around their puberty, if you will, or in their kind of their late stage of teens. That's that's normally when we try to be able to do that.
2: Perfect. So moving on to yet another big hereditary syndrome is the hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer or HNPCC. Tell us a little bit about this syndrome.
0: So I think it's important to uh, make one uh, current distinction. So in many cases, Lynch syndrome is associated with F- HNPCC, the hereditary non polyposis colorectal cancer. And so in general, remember, HNPCC is defined clinically. It's normally for people who's, uh, who satisfy the Amsterdam 1 or the Amsterdam 2 criteria. Lynch syndrome is defined genetically. It's by the presence of a germline mutation in DNA mismatch repair genes. So, although a lot of people describe them as being the same, there's a lot of overlap here, but in general, I think one is a clinical diagnosis and the other one is a germline diagnosis. As such, not all HNPCC patients have Lynch syndrome and not all Lynch syndrome uh, families have HNPCC. So, um, HN, uh, in general, HNPCC um, is something that is uh, autosomal dominant. Um, as opposed to the APC gene, like I talked about before, these are DNA mismatch repair genes. So MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, PMS2. And in many of these, there may be subtle differences in the genetic defect that may show the phenotypical manifestations of these patients, um, whether or not they are more associated with other non or extracolonic manifestations like like a uterine type malignancy. Um, so it's important to kind of dig in the weeds a little bit there. I-, I talked a little bit before about the Amsterdam criteria, and in general, this is the old three-two-one rule. At least three first-degree relatives over two generations, and one of them should be less than 50 years old with cancer. Uh, the difference between this in terms of screening versus uh, the FAP patients, as we talked about, FAP patients should start their screening at about 10 to 12 years, um, we want to screen for those patients about 20 to 25 years. And we get that with uh, colonoscopies. Um, we also want to make sure that we look for transitional cell, urothelial type cells. So they get, um, they get urinary surveillance, oftentimes with the urinalysis. Uh, they'll get a pelvic exam with a, for women with a um, transvaginal or transabdominal um, ultrasound and biopsy is needed. And then oftentimes they also get a skin examination for those patients that have dermatological manifestations.
2: Coming to the surgical management of these patients, when should they undergo, if they should undergo any prophylactic surgeries?
0: Yeah, this is a great thing. And so this is something that's, like most things, a little bit controversial. So uh, it's important to understand if you have rectal involvement or not. If you don't have rectal involvement, you can consider having a total abdominal colectomy and an ileorectal anastomosis. Uh, there are some papers, including papers out of our institution that talk about a segmental colectomy versus a subtotal or a total abdominal colectomy and uh, making sure that the patients undergo, um, <clears throat> undergo proper surveillance uh, and the account- outcomes tend to be equivalent here. Um, so the rectal cancer patients, you know, you can essentially have, if they have identified rectal cancer, it's similar to having sporadic and you stage them appropriately, neoadjuvant tumor radiation therapy as needed for locally advanced and then have that discussion. And certainly you could talk to these patients about having a total proctectomy in a pouch, but you know, in unlike FAP, the patients that have Lynch syndrome can tend to have that discussion about having a segmental colectomy or a proctectomy in these particular patients. Because of the known Uh, changes associated with um, endometrial cancer, uterine type cancer, um, a THA, BSO is a consideration for those patients. And it's a discussion that you have, especially if the patients are, are past childbearing. So have all of these considerations in mind.
2: The next topic of discussion on this bonus episode will be about carcinoids. And we will start off with something that is incidentally found in the OR is a lot of times appendiceal carcinoid. So when is an appendectomy indicated?
0: Yeah, great question. So in general, you always got to think about what is the location of the tumor uh, in the appendix and also kind of what is the underlying kind of biology of the tumor or the lesion that you're dealing with. So if you have something that is encroaching on the base, so you can't get great clearance on it, you obviously got to do a little bit more of a resection. If you have something that is down, you know, near the tip of the appendix, then you know, you're going to say to yourself, that's something that I can get clear on and I can potentially just do an appendectomy alone. And in general, these are lesions that tend to be smaller, less than two centimeters. Um, and then again, you don't have involvement of the base or any extension into the mesoappendix, which tends to be a little bit more of a poor prognosis. So the question asked in a little bit different way is who are the patients that you would undergo right collect on? So we talked a little bit about, you know, where that location is, but also we want to go into some poor prognostic signs. So those patients that have a high mitotic rate, um, those patients with a high KI 67 index, the greater than two centimeters, that's if it's at the base of the appendix, if they have lymphovascular invasion, if they have mesopendosis involvement, those are those kind of biological attributes of the underlying tumor that you may say, I need to go ahead and I may need to be able to do a much um, further oncologic resection on these patients. The other important aspect is, is that remember that it, for a lot of these patients, they may present uh, with carcinoid with metastatic disease commonly to the liver. And remember, it's when you have such a degree to the liver that is kind of overflowing that, that, that byproduct, uh, the liver's ability to take that out of there that the patients become symptomatic. And so symptomatic disease in general, or liver disease, it tends to be a little bit more slow growing, but we don't have great type of chemotherapeutics. You may see streptozocin somewhere in some textbook out there. And, uh, but in general, we try to treat them with somatostatin therapy or triotype type therapy. Um, and the chemotherapy is probably a second line agent. It doesn't work as well in these patients. And uh, oftentimes we do have some liver directed therapy on these particular patients, but chemotherapy not as good somatostatin will slow it down, octreotide therapy to be able to um, help out with symptomatic control in these patients.
2: Perfect. Moving on to rectal carcinoids, similar story, depends on the location, but tell us a little bit more about uh, rectal carcinoid and the key features that one should be on the lookout for.
0: So uh, in general, the rectal carcinoids, it it is a difference. And so This is another one of these scary subjects. So there's a lot more that goes into it, but very basic rule of thumb are think about size. So in general, something that is less than two centimeters oftentimes is responsive to local excision. And if it's greater than two centimeters, even a lot of the textbooks will say to undergo an oncological resection, a low anterior resection, if it's a little bit higher up or if it's lower and involved in uh, in the sphincter complex or close to it that they might have to undergo an abdominal perineal resection. Uh, but if it's if it's amenable to a local excision and it's small, less than two centimeters, then you can get uh, that uh, that local excision.
2: One of the rare topics that is covered in colorectal and off, uh, very rarely seen on site, but it's a high yield, is something called the solitary rectal ulcer syndrome. Tell us a little bit about how this question is typically phrased for an app like test and what are the key features that one should be on the lookout for when you're picking this as an answer choice
0: yeah so if you are thinking of cancer that is not a cancer but it may look like a cancer and it's typically from patients who have pelvic floor dysfunction so pelvic floor dysfunction with chronic kind of irritation on that where the rectum's intussuscepting on yourself and you're forming that ulcer these patients are ones that have straining and, and they cannot get um, uh, bowel movement out. And so they have incomplete evacuation, oftentimes they can get bleeding, they can have a large amount of mucus discharge and, and it's pain. The hard part about this is that it is a wide range of phenotypical manifestations, you can have something that looks like in like a cancer that's protruding, or you can have a true ulcer itself. And so they can be a little bit um, a little bit all over the map. So we typically work this up, obviously, with an endoscopy and biopsies, but this is the case where you really wanna get a defecography and that defecography will show, um, and again, you can get an anorectal manometry, but uh, the defecography will show that you have rectal interception. They are classically on endoscopic examination, anywhere between four and 12 centimeters from the anal verge, and many times on the anterior rectal wall. you can perform biopsies and that biopsy is the show exclusion, especially in the case of malignancy, uh, make sure you don't have IBD, HIV, or even a ulceration. Um, but uh, again, think to yourself, this is somebody who has excessive straining. They got a lot of mucus discharge, some bleeding and an ulceration. That's the issue here.
2: And this is something that I would really put in a plug for like just going and doing a Google image search for solitary rectal ulcer syndrome. Because oftentimes these side questions will present with just an endoscopic picture and will give you an idea of what you're looking for, uh, just like you described the endoscopic features on the anterior rectal
0: wall. The other thing that I would say is the question sometimes may come up, how do you treat these? And remember, if you don't have a cancer, you got an ulceration, what you don't want to do is probably do a local excision. You know, in general, we try to treat these with, you know, with symptomatic or really working on the underlying problem. And here the underlying problem is problems with intussusception.
2: The next topic we will be discussing is uh, something that we see every day in the wards is C. Diff. Colitis. So. What's another name for C. diff colitis, and why is it called that?
0: Yeah, so we talk a little bit. Um, we talk a little bit about the fact that um, C. diff colitis or uh, Clostridium difficile uh, infection, um, pseudomembranous colitis is another one because that's what it looks like. These kind of these membranes that are coating that. Um, That happens when you have neutrophilic inflammation uh, associated with mucosin, submucosin. We're looking for those membranes that are also called plaques. Um, I I would say to you that uh, in general, this is something that can present as an asymptomatic carrier all the way up to somebody who has essentially uh, fulminant colitis where they are dying on you. Some of the hallmarks of this disease are patients that may have you know, severe profuse diarrhea. And if it gets really bad in fulminic they may actually have an ileus and you may see megacolon in these particular patients. Um, And then oftentimes one of the hallmarks of this disease, you see white counts that are extremely high, greater than 20, sometimes even up to 40 or even higher. Um, In general, um, the first line treatment for a stable patient that was not super sick used to be alone. That's now uh, decrease, it's not flagellate, it's now vancomycin, or in some cases, if they have a little bit more, having dual therapy. Uh, for those patients who um, have a little bit more aggressive therapy, um, you know, having uh, other medications, there's everything from having multiple different patients from rifampin or bile acid, or I'm sorry, not bile acid, but toxin binding type ones. Medications um, that will be able to treat these particular patients, but surgery does play a role, and surgery plays a role for those patients who have um, toxic colitis or megacolon that undergo an urgent subtotal colectomy. Uh, it is associated with high mortality. One of the considerations that I think that people uh, should be prepared for is you may see uh, some literature out there. I don't think you're going to see it on an app site that talks about undergoing a diverting loop ileostomy with a colonic lavage. Uh, There's a great paper out of Pittsburgh uh, that talked about this, but uh, it's not really been a part of a standard routine. I don't think you're going to see this on this type of test. It's associated with essentially with some improvement in some studies, but it's not wide range. I think that our goal here is to say you have toxic colitis, undergo a subtotal colectomy and an end ileostomy.
2: Perfect. We'll end this episode with our five quick hit questions. Um, so starting off with, uh, what is considered the landmark in APR while dividing the peritoneum on the right side of the recto sigmoid?
0: Yeah, in general, when you talk about this, really what you're going for here is you want to be able to say, I want to enter that avascular sacral, presacral plane. And so you're looking for the sacral promontory. understand that in that particular location, another test that comes or another question that comes up is what nerves can you get there? And the nerves typically are the sympathetic nerves. <laughs> And those sympathetic or hypogastric nerves are the ones that are going to cause you uh, to have problems associated with retrograde ejaculation in males.
2: All right. What is the difference between a total and a subtotal colectomy regarding the vessels that are taken in
0: the surgery? Yeah, so it's a great question. So a lot of times these are also uh, used interchangeably, and you may see that in general if you talk about a subtotal colectomy. Uh, in many cases, people are saying, I'm going to leave a little bit of sigmoid behind versus a total colectomy that I'm going to be able to remove all the way down past the rectosigmoid junction on the upper part of the rectum. So in this case, if you're going to do a subtotal colectomy, think about you're going to leave a little bit of sigmoid behind and what innervate or what supplies blood supply to the sigmoid is the sigmoid vessels.
2: Perfect. A little bit of memory recall. We talked about desmoids in association with familial Um, adenomatous polyposis. This also has another name. And what's the syndrome's name?
0: Haha, very good. So for those of you out there, I'll pause a bit. Think about it. Think about it. Gardner syndrome.
2: Exactly. All right, moving on patient presents to your clinic with one centimeter palpable mass that reduces manually. They do not know what they have, but they do have a history of recent MI and they are currently on Plavix. So what's the diagnosis and what therapy would you offer for this patient?
0: Yeah. So in general, uh, think about it. So when we're talking about things that uh, are, are prolapsing and coming back in, the first thing you want to be able to say is, is it a true mass? Is it a cancer I'm dealing with? Or is this just hemorrhoids? Or is it rectal prolapse? In general, those are the things that are going to be able to go down there. But if a patient has a one centimeter palpable mass reduces manually, they, you know, they're on Plavix, you know, if you're going to say that uh, you're going to identify and make sure that it is not any of the malignancies, and we're sure that this is hemorrhoids, and they're on Plavix, is Plavix going to be something that you're going to be able to take to the operating room and take out? Or can you do other forms of therapy? And those other forms of therapy revolve around banding. Why don't we band in somebody that is going to be on Plavix? Because after the band falls off, you can have an ulcer there and you can get a lot of bleeding. I can tell you it's probably, it may or may not have been done. But um, uh, I will tell you that the other reality is, is that you can uh, give sclerotherapy. And there's a lot of different sclerotherapies that are out there, you may see sodium tetradecol, you may see um, phenol and olive oil, you can, you know, see, uh, you know, even Ancef has been used in the past in terms of a sclerotherapy, but the, the goal with sclerotherapy is to be able to inject that sclerosin, that's going to be able to allow that to scar down and then decreasing the ability to have those uh, blood vessels bleed.
2: Perfect. And our last quick hits for this bonus episode, patient undergoes an aortic valve replacement and presents with a lower GI bleed. What is the leading diagnosis that you are thinking for this patient?
0: Uh So the trick here is that old aortic valve replacement. And oftentimes they give this question in terms of you're doing a physical exam and you hear that click or whatever they want to give you on your stethoscope examination. And they have lower GI bleeding. And this is angiodysplasia, which is classically on the right side uh, of the colon and not on the left. So if you got stethoscope and lower GI bleeding, think AVM or angiodysplasia.
2: Perfect. And that wraps it up for our colorectal bonus episode. Good luck with all the studying. Until then,
0: dominate the day. Thanks for listening. And thank
1: you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursued their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.